First Coast Connect with Melissa Ross is sponsored in part by Baptist Health. Good morning and live with you from Studio 2. I'm Brendan Rivers sitting in for Melissa Ross. This is First Coast Connect. Thanks for listening. Just ahead, a conversation with Chris Hand about the Jacksonville mayoral candidates as early voting gets underway. Join the conversation. Give us a call at 549-2937. Again, that's 549-2937. Then later, a preview of the players. All of that and more ahead. But first this hour, early voting begins today in Duval County to determine the races for the next mayor of Jacksonville, city council, and more. But what do we really know about the mayoral candidates, despite or maybe because of a particularly ugly campaign season and an expensive one at that? And what happens if no candidate gets enough votes to declare a clear-cut winner on Election Day? Chris Hand, a local government law attorney, author, and former chief of staff for the city of Jacksonville, is here for a closer look. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Brendan. So, as I mentioned, early voting starts today. Vote-by-mail ballots were sent out a while ago, and we're now about two weeks away from Election Day itself. That's March 21st. Uh, Listeners, if you need to find your polling location or any other voting information, head over to DuvalElections.com. Chris, the supervisor of elections is reporting that they've received a little over 19,000 mail ballots at this point, with more than 45,000 vote-by-mail ballots requested for this election. That number will likely grow, but that's still a very small fraction of the more than 650,000 eligible voters in Duval County. What kind of turnout are you expecting in this election? Probably not as high as we would like, Brendan. And I think that's been a historical trend in recent city elections. If you track them over the last several election periods 2011, 2015, 2019, uh, there has been, unfortunately, a decline in voter turnout uh, over those elections. Uh, We have yet to see, of course, what 2023 is going to look like. But if it maintains that pattern, voter turnout will likely be low in the March 21st election. What do you think is is driving those turnout numbers to decline? Well, I think there's a variety of potential factors. You know, one of the big debates, Brendan, as you're probably aware of, is are our elections scheduled at the right time? Obviously, we have what are called the off-off-year elections, uh, where we have our elections in the spring of the odd-numbered year after the state elections. Um, So it's not a time where people are often accustomed to voting. This isn't a November general election where you're electing a governor or president. Uh, That likely has some impact. There's probably some voter fatigue. Remember, we just went through kind of a big election here in the state just a very few months ago, four, four or five months ago, where uh, there was a governor's race, a U.S. Senate races, races for the legislature, the school board. And so, you know, voters are being asked to kind of come back to the polls a very short time after that. That has an impact as well. And I think turnout efforts are just have not been as robust uh, in these spring city elections as they have been in some of the fall elections as well. The irony is, of course, is that local government, city government, what the work of the consolidated city of Jacksonville has the biggest, most immediate, and most significant impact on our lives on a day-to-day basis. So arguably, these are the, I mean, people obviously should be exercising that fundamental right, that most important form of effective citizenship in every election, but especially in local government elections, where those votes and who those votes elect really do have an immediate and daily impact on our lives. And how do elections like the upcoming election, how how does turnout on those types of elections compared to when there's a governor or a president on the ballot as well? It's significantly less. And in some cases, if you look historically, it could be as much as half of what that turnout is uh, compared to some of those other elections. And again, really depends on which two elections you're comparing. But there's no question that turnout is typically down and down significantly in the March and May elections, as opposed to what happens in, say, as to what the voter numbers were in November 2020, uh, when there was an election for president of the United States, and as there was in November 22 when we elected a governor, a cabinet, and other state of Florida officials. All right, so we're expecting fairly low turnout this election. Does that benefit any of the candidates, do you think? I think it benefits those candidates. Well, first of all, it doesn't certainly doesn't benefit the electorate as in general, as we were just discussing, given the importance of local government. But I think it does put a premium on those candidates who have strong voter turnout operations, who are able to get their voters uh, to the polls and really motivate their supporters 
to actually get out and cast a ballot, whether that's by mail or during early voting or on Election Day itself. So uh, those voters who have those candidates who have the most intense support, the most enthusiastic supporters and have built the strongest voter turnout operations are those who tend to benefit in a particularly in a multi-candidate field situation uh, in an election like this one. All right. So the candidates themselves, uh, where do they stand on some of the, the biggest issues that we're facing as a community? Well, I think we're going to have some very good opportunities to kind of size up the candidates side by side. As you know, Brendan, uh, this week is going to be the first of the televised debates of the uh, of seven the seven candidates for mayor, uh, w, uh, WJXT and JU Public Policy Institute, hosting that debate on Wednesday night. So that's really going to be really the first opportunity for uh, members of the electorate to be able to view the candidates side by side and really hear what their positions on key issues are. And and we have no shortage of those in the community coming up, whether that's the issue of stadium funding, whether that's the issue of economic development and job creation, the future of the St. John's River. Uh, There's been, you know, increasing uh, amounts written about the state of our infrastructure here. The new announced plan to have University of Florida develop a campus here in downtown Jacksonville. That's just the tip of the iceberg of issues that uh, I think it's important that voters hear from candidates where they stand but I think there's a broader issue even than that, Brendan, which is this is an opportunity for voters to hear from candidates where they want to lead the city of Jacksonville over next the next four years. What's their vision? Uh, what's their plan to execute that vision? And how do they expect the city to be different four or eight years from now uh, than it was when they actually started office? So elections at their best are a conversation between voters and those candidates. And this week, and of course from the for the remaining two weeks before the election, is really the last chance for that conversation to occur and for citizens to understand where candidates want to take Jacksonville and how they plan to get there. And do you think up to this point any of the candidates have have done a good job of articulating the sort of vision that they have for the city? I think there's been a lot of messaging back and forth, particularly from political committees, about why certain candidates should not be mayor. We've heard a lot less about why various candidates should be mayor and what their vision is for the community and, again, how they would execute that vision. You know, I think, and I talk about this in a recent piece I did uh, about vision and mayoral candidates, but we've had a number of mayors in this community who have either before or during their time in office developed visions and then developed roadmaps for how to achieve that vision. The late Jake Godbold thought Jacksonville was a major league city and that we should have a National Football League team here. That was his vision. He led out a roadmap and uh, built the foundation that several years after his term was over resulted in the Jacksonville Jaguars coming here. Tommy Hazuri didn't want Jacksonville to be known as the city that stunk anymore, that had odor of industrial pollution. Had a vision of that, put a plan in place to help eliminate some of those issues that are here. Uh, John Delaney with the Better Jacksonville Plan and the Preservation Project. John Payton in diversifying the city's revenue streams. Those were all mayors who had visions and then put together plans to execute those visions. So it is possible, and it's very important in an election like this, particularly given the strong mayor system that we have in our consolidated city. But there hasn't been a lot of talk about that so far. Hopefully in these last two weeks before March 21st, the contenders for mayors will make it clear to the citizens and the voters uh, how they would lead Jacksonville and, and what their plan is to get there. Okay, and again, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. The number is 549-2937. You can also comment uh, on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email. Uh, so according to recent polling, the, the front runners are Democrat Donna Deegan and Republican Daniel Davis. Uh, Deegan has been on First Coast Connect several times, but Davis's team hasn't responded to multiple interview requests. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on these two candidates specifically, their, their policy positions and their chances of winning? Well, I think we're going to obviously we're going to learn more in the next couple of weeks. But if polling is to be believed, the two of them seem to be headed toward that March, that May 16th, second election. And just as a reminder to everybody how our electoral system works here at the Consolidated City of Jacksonville, we have a unitary system, meaning that all candidates run on the same ballot, regardless of party affiliation. If no one receives 50 percent plus one, a majority in the first election, then the top two finishers move on to a May 16th, second election to determine who the next mayor will be. If that polling is correct that we've seen, and of course it's important to say the only polling that ultimately counts is what we'll see 
on March 21st when the supervisor of elections reports the actual results of, of voters' decisions. Uh, but it does look like it's going to narrow down to a field of Donna Deegan and Daniel Davis. And I think we'll have some great contrasts in their two positions, their backgrounds, uh, how they view the job of mayor. So I think there is likely to be a clear contrast between the two candidates if those are the two who advance to the next election. But it is incumbent on all of us as voters and citizens to make sure that whoever those two remaining candidates are, that they address our hopes and concerns, they speak to the future of Jacksonville, they tell us what their visions are and what their plan and roadmap is to help achieve that vision. So whether it's Daniel Davis and Donna Deegan or two other candidates, there is a responsibility that all of us as voters have to make sure they speak to our issues and tell us that how they will use their time as the mayor of Jacksonville. All right. And if it, if things go as, as it appears they will, and, and we end up uh, in a race between Daniels and Deegan, do you think that one-on-one matchup will benefit either of those candidates? Well, you know, it's, it's difficult to say at this point exactly how that, uh, how that election will move forward. Like I said, I think there's likely to be a pretty significant contrast between the two candidates in their issue positions, uh, obviously in the, you know, in the different sort of experiences and backgrounds they've brought to the job. There's going to be a lot for voters to evaluate. Uh, but I think the, you know, the other uh, one aspect of moving to that May 16th election is it has a, a clarifying effect. Right now, there are seven candidates who will be listed on the ballot. Uh, if people are going to early voting today or this week, they'll see seven choices. And there's also a write-in candidate who won't be listed on the ballot, so arguably eight total. When you get down to two, that really has a way of kind of clarifying what a campaign is about. Just to give you an example, in a mayoral campaign I was involved with in 2011, when the final two candidates were then Duval County tax collector Mike Hogan and Alvin Brown, who was ultimately elected mayor, that second election in many ways became a debate about the future of downtown because there were very clear differences between the two. One candidate... uh, believe that downtown was just another neighborhood. Another was a big downtown uh, sort of revitalization supporter. So much of the campaign became about that issue. When we do have those two candidates, that is often an opportunity to crystallize the issues involved and really understand what those contrasts are so that people understand if I elect candidate A, this is the administration I'm likely to see. If I elect candidate B, it might be like this. All right. And as you mentioned, we have a, a big debate coming up on Wednesday. That's at 8 p.m. on News for Jacks. Uh, ultimately, do you think the these debates will have an effect on the outcome of the election? Do you think that they will actually change people's minds? Well, I think given that it's the first opportunity voters are going to have to see the seven candidates stand side by side, talk about their visions and their plans and priorities for the office of mayor, Uh, and have a chance to evaluate them against each other, I think there are uh, undecided voters who could be impacted by that. If you've seen each of the last two polls that came out, St. Pete polls and the University of North Florida poll, both had a significant number of voters who were still undecided as to who they were going to choose. That's not unusual in elections like this, that there's a significant segment of the electorate that hasn't made up its mind until the very end. But it is events like the WJXT-JU Public Policy Institute debate that can help those undecided voters uh, decide who they are going to ultimately vote for in the election. So, yes, particularly at a moment like this, with this timing, uh, with this many candidates and with that many undecided voters, that debate can absolutely provide key information so those undecided voters can make a decision. All right, great. And and is there anything in that debate that you're going to be looking out for or keeping an eye on? Maybe not even having to do with policy uh, positions, but just there's just been a lot of drama in this race so far. Well, I think the I think for me the key issue I'm watching, Brendan, is uh, what are these what cases are these candidates going to make for themselves to be the next mayor? Because as we said from the outset, there's been a lot of discussion in this contest about why certain candidates shouldn't be mayor. Uh, people, anyone who's been watching television or uh, checks the mail or logs onto the internet has received messaging about why certain candidates, why some political committees think certain candidates shouldn't be mayor. But we've just had a, you know, a much less information about why candidates should be mayor. This debate is a great opportunity for candidates to make their case as to why you know, he or she should be elected the next mayor of Jacksonville. So that's what I'm looking for. Uh, are these candidates going to make their case for why voters should elect them as opposed to not electing somebody else? Um, and as you're mentioning earlier, your recent piece in Jacksonville today that's kind of talking about vision and, and how some of our past mayors have 
had a very strong vision for the future and you, and you kind of feel like we're, we're losing some of that uh, in, in our modern politics. Can you walk us through, because I've only been here since like 2018, so, so I'm still kind of learning about sort of the history of politics in this area. How, how as you see it, how have elections and, and politics here in Jacksonville, how have they progressed over the past several years? Well, I think, you know, again, we've, and I think this is not just a phenomenon here in Jacksonville. I think this is true at every level of government. Uh, but, you know, I think elections have, you know, have moved to some extent where it's not always that sort of intense conversation with the voters about what the what the community um, should look like. Um, and I think, you know, I think that's one of the things that many people hope this election will sort of move back in that direction. A chance for candidates and voters to actually talk about what kind of community we want to see moving forward. Obviously, with the advent of political committees and some of those other uh, changes in the election system, um, you know, elections locally and everywhere else have tended to become less focused on those kinds of questions, which is a shame, particularly here in the city of Jacksonville, because, you know, since we, you know, this is the 55th anniversary of the city of Jacksonville and Duval County consolidating, um, that created a local government that serves a million people in this community. And also by virtue of the way we've structured that local government, Brendan, where we have a strong mayor, directly elected mayor, who is the chief executive and has a lot of authority and ability to shape the future of the community. Uh, many past mayoral elections have focused more on how we shape the future of that community than this one has so far. So again, that's an opportunity here in the remaining two weeks of the first election, and then the six weeks after that in the second election, uh, for these candidates to really engage citizens in that discussion. What kind of community do we want to be where do you want to lead Jacksonville if you're one of the candidates? And what's your roadmap uh, to help reach that destination? As we know, it's impossible to reach a destination if you don't know what it is. Okay. And again, everyone, today is the first day of early voting. Are you planning to vote? Uh, give us a call. Let us know. The number again is 549-2937. Uh, Chris, I'm curious, what role do you think the media has played in the way that we think about and, and talk about politics and elections today? Well, I think there are a number of outlets here in town who have really tried to provide opportunities for candidates to kind of directly engage uh, voters through their particular station. WJCT, where we, this studio where we're sitting right now, obviously here on First Coast Connect and through other forums, uh, WJCT's tried to provide that. WJXT, I know, for example, on Kent Justice's show this week in Jacksonville, has had every mayoral candidate uh, as a guest. And, of course, you know, our local uh, newspaper, the Florida Times Union, uh, provides coverage as well. But we do live in a different media world. I'm not suggesting, by the way, there are other outlets. I didn't mean to exclude anyone. There are, of course, other outlets who have been very engaged in covering this, uh, this campaign as well, just mentioning the ones that, you know, that I'm uh, most familiar with. But so plenty of outlets have covered it. But we do have that challenge in the media world these days where there are just fewer outlets and fewer reporters uh, than there have been in a long time because of some changes in the industry. That makes it more challenging for any media outlet to cover every candidate. There was a time not that long ago in 2011 where the Florida Times Union had a reporter assigned to every mayoral candidate uh, in uh, that campaign. Twelve years later, the Times Union just doesn't have the resources to do that uh, anymore. And while they do incredible work with the resources that they have, they can't assign a reporter to every mayoral candidate any longer. So the changes in the media landscape, I think, have certainly affected that. But that is why it is so important that voters directly engage these candidates with their questions uh, and make sure that their hopes and concerns are addressed. And, and the good news, Brendan, is that there are plenty of opportunities to do that, whether that is at sort of forums and meetings around the community, because, of course, those are happening Every candidate has an email address associated with their campaign. If you go to DuvalElections.com and look up their campaigns, you'll see their campaign contact information. We can directly uh, uh, em you know, engage with the candidates that way, and, of course, on social media as well. So given some of the changes in the media landscape and the fact that there are just not as many media outlets uh, that still exist or within those outlets not as many reporters that still exist covering these elections, that means that we as voters, as citizens, uh, have that obligation to use our effective citizenship powers, directly engage the candidates and make sure they are addressing our hopes and concerns and make sure they're telling us what their vision for the future of Jacksonville is and sharing us the path that's going to help them reach that vision. 
All right, great. And we're starting to get a few calls here now, so let's take to the phones. I think first we've got Herman in downtown Jacksonville. Good morning, Herman. Good morning, gentlemen. Dr. Mahan, how do you see this uh, election? According to our governor polls, uh, 59% of the Latino vote voted for Governor DeSantis. With two Latino candidates, I believe Al Ferraro and uh, Macombo, uh, is Latino vote going to be split? Have they endorsed which candidate they're going to be supporting? And how strong is the Latino vote in uh, Jacksonville? Are they still a swing vote? And lastly, uh, the African-American vote, are they a block vote? Uh, is that vote still strong? Thanks for everything you do. Appreciate your comment. Have a great week. All right. Thank you, Herman. Chris? Well, excellent question. And, you know, look, I don't think that any segment of the community is ever a block vote or the candidate should ever assume that they're going to vote one way or another. It's really important to make sure that candidates engage uh, with people throughout the community. Uh, as you pointed out, the kind of Latino community, the Hispanic community here in Jacksonville uh, is a fast-growing community and one that has been very politically engaged over the last several election cycles. I know, for example, leaders in the local Hispanic community have organized candidate forums uh, and had opportunities for candidates to directly engage the Hispanic community. And I think it's really incumbent, whether it's the Hispanic community or the African-American community or other uh, key segments of the of the electorate here, that candidates do engage, that, again, that really what these campaigns are supposed to be about, they're not always about this, but what they're supposed to be about is an opportunity for the candidates to get around this large community we have, more than 830 square miles here in the city of Jacksonville, and touch and engage with as many potential voters as possible to understand what their concerns and hopes are for the future. So I don't know what some of the individual campaigns have been doing uh, directly to engage, whether it's the Hispanic community or the African-American community or other uh, you know, parts of our community, but it's really important that they do that so that they arrive at City Hall with a very good understanding of the hopes and concerns, uh, you know, across this very diverse community that we have. All right, we got another caller on the line. We have Tom at NAS Jacksonville. Good morning, Tom. Uh, yes, good morning. I, I don't want to sound contradictory to your guests, uh, but there's nothing about this election that has anything to do with the future of Jacksonville or what anyone wants Jacksonville to look like in the future. This election is about who is the biggest hater. If you watch the TV ads and you look at the flyers that they've been sending out, the Republican uh, candidates have just made this, have made hate a competitive sport. And that's who people are going to vote for, the biggest hater of the group. I've been in Jacksonville since 1995. I've been through all these better Jacksonville campaigns and what we want the future of Jacksonville to look like. It, quite frankly, Jacksonville hasn't changed a bit. You mow down the landing and that's the only change that's been made it's all about the hate and that's what counts to the voters in jacksonville and that's what i have to say all right thanks for your call tom well a much more cynical view of uh, uh the modern state of politics what's your take chris well my take is that and again as we talked about earlier and and tom is not wrong that in this sense we've uh, we've seen a lot more about uh with political committees saying why you know certain mayoral candidates should not be mayor and we've heard about why candidates believe they should be elected the next mayor. So, But I do disagree. I think there are a, a large segment of voters, even the majority of voters in this community, who live here, who care about this community, uh, who want to understand what the different mayoral candidates will do in that job, how they will directly uh, and significantly impact their lives in this community. But it's on all of us, on Tom, on me, on you, on everybody, to make sure we are directly engaging with those candidates and saying that if you don't want this election to be about some of this negativity, make sure they address our hopes and concerns, make sure they lay out their visions for the community, make sure they provide answers on those key issues that are likely to impact the future of our community. Uh, earlier this year, I wrote a piece in the Jackson uh, posing 20 questions for city of Jacksonville mayoral candidates. Every citizen is going to have some version of that, the questions that they want answered. So if we don't want campaigns to be negative, if we don't want campaigns to be about hate or, you know, some of these other um, challenges, 
then it's our obligation as voters to make sure we are engaging with these candidates and telling them, here's what we want the campaign to be about. Here's what we want you to address. And tell us where you're going to lead Jacksonville and how you're going to lead us there. All right, Chris, we're running out of time. So one one last quick question. you got less than a minute here. We've been talking a lot about the mayoral election. Are there any other uh, city council or down ballot races that you think uh, uh, residents should be keeping an eye on? Yes, we're going to elect a new Duval County property appraiser. That's the one of the constitutional offices that's actually on the ballot. So that you'll people will see that on their ballot. And, of course, we elect a new city council. There are 19 city council members. There are uh, 15 contested races for the city council, uh, either at large or district seats. Those are crucially important. That's a co-equal branch of government. Uh, so, again, highly encourage people to educate yourselves on the candidates and make sure you vote either in early voting or on Election Day, March 21st. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Chris. We appreciate your insight. Thank you, Brendan. All right. Much more still ahead. Later in the hour, a chat with District 11 City Council candidate Raymond Day. But up next, the newest Omicron strain of COVID-19 is spreading across the country. Talk about steps you can take to make sure you don't catch it. We'll be right back. strain of COVID-19 is gaining traction across the country, while many areas are still recovering from the holiday surge in infections. Still, many Americans struggle to see COVID as an ongoing threat and are foregoing the latest vaccines. As their immunity from past infection or vaccination wanes, they're putting themselves at unnecessary risk for serious illness and hospitalization. Over the winter months, with more time spent inside and COVID flu and other viruses circulating, it's more important than ever to stay up to date on vaccinations. It's also important to practice healthy habits, like washing your hands frequently and wearing a mask in crowded spaces. For more, Melissa Ross spoke with Antrell Tyson, Regional Director for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Antrell, it's good to be with you. So what do people need to know about this latest COVID variant? Well, that's a great question. Um, viruses constantly change through mutations. Sometimes these mutations result in new variants of a virus. Some variants emerge and disappear while others persist. New variants are very likely to continue to, uh, to emerge, and the severity of, and ease of the spread of these variants is unpredictable. We know that highly contagious Omicron variants have been getting better and better at evading natural immunity compared with earlier variants. The XBB15 is a sublineage of the Omicron and is spreading through the United States. All right. Now, when it comes to vaccination, what can you tell us about the latest version, you know, the latest iteration of the COVID vaccines that are available? Well, COVID-19 vaccines continue to work very well at preventing the worst outcomes from covid if you're vaccinated and you've had COVID, your immune system is primed, uh, is primed to respond when you're exposed to the virus. But the longer it has been since you've had COVID or gotten the vaccines, the more likely your immunity is waning. An updated COVID vaccine gives you added protections from severe COVID illnesses, hospitalizations, and death. Updated vaccines are now available for anyone whose last dose was before September. Only people who have, had, who have completed their primary COVID vaccine series can get the updated vaccines. Vaccinated children six months and older can now get the updated COVID vaccine if they've completed their first or their primary Moderna uh, vaccine series or gotten the two doses of the three-dose Pfizer primary vaccine series. 
All right. And here's a question we get asked a lot. Should someone get the updated vaccine if they've recently had COVID? So absolutely. If you're vaccinated and if you've had COVID but haven't gotten the updated vaccine yet, you should get one three months or more after your COVID infection. Three months or more. All right. Um, and, you know, there are still a fair number of people out there who are skeptical about the efficacy of COVID vaccines, despite the really strenuous efforts over the last three years of your department and doctors all over the country trying to get more people vaccinated. So what's your message to people who think I'd rather risk getting COVID than getting the vaccine? Listen, that is a very, very good question. And we, we see that question a lot, or at least hear that question a lot. But the long-term health problems from vaccines are very rare. The risk from COVID far outweigh any risk from side effects from the vaccine. Symptoms from COVID very, uh, very greatly, but people who contract COVID can experience severe illness that can lead to hospitalizations or even death. But people who recover, uh, but people who recover, even sometimes those who had mild cases initially, can experience lingering symptoms for many months. COVID can damage internal organs or can lead to an increased risk of long-term health problems such as strokes, seizures, and heart disease. In contrast, side effects from vaccines are minimal and almost always go away in a few days. So the risk far outweigh the. Uh, the consequences of of, of getting uh, COVID. Now, Paxlovid, of course, has emerged as a treatment that's available as soon as we test positive. Anything else uh, that uh, you can share when it comes to COVID treatments? Yeah, COVID is treatable with medications that doctor can prescribe based on how high of a risk it is for complications. People who are 50 years or older or who have chronic conditions like diabetes, heart disease, or lung disease may be eligible for treatment depending on the doctor's recommendation. Many healthcare locations like pharmacies and urgent care centers can now treat and test COVID during the same visit, so making treatment a convenient option. Well, getting vaccinated is a great way to reduce your risk of developing long COVID, which can include new or ongoing symptoms that can last for weeks or months after COVID infection. Among people who get COVID, those who are vaccinated are less likely to get long COVID than those who are unvaccinated. A recent study also found that two doses of the vaccine's primary series were more effective than one dose. So it's important to complete a primary series and stay up to date on the COVID vaccinations. And, you know, people have largely stopped wearing masks at least in our part of Florida. Uh, what's the message from the Department of Health and Human Services on masking, at least in crowded places, and continuing to wash our hands and take other precautions? Yeah, we get it. I know people have definitely experienced COVID fatigue, but COVID vaccines provide strong protection from serious illnesses, hospitalizations, and death from COVID. But masks can add another layer of protection, especially in indoor places and communities where COVID is spreading. Proper hand washing is always a good idea to keep yourself and others from getting sick with various illnesses, including COVID. So, you know, those practices have worked, and we, we highly recommend that people continue on uh, using those, uh, making sure that they're masking up and washing their hands as we continue to move forward. Well, thank you so much. Antral Trison, Esquire Regional Director for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Thanks for being with us. All right. Thank you, Marissa. Welcome back. You're listening to First Coast Connect. I'm Brendan Rivers sitting in for Melissa Ross. As we mentioned earlier, Jacksonville City Council seats are also at stake in this election. We've been speaking with a number of candidates over the last few weeks. And now Raymond Day, who is running in District 11, is here with more on his platform. Thanks for joining us, Raymond. Thank you, Brendan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So to start out, 
Tell us a bit about yourself and why you decided to run for city council. Uh, sure. Uh, I'm a fifth generation Floridian. Uh, my family moved to Florida in 1857 and my mother moved us to Jacksonville in 1957. I was raised here, attended public schools, graduated from Jacksonville University, worked for a few years and then went to graduate school at the University of Florida where I earned an MBA in finance. Came back home to Jacksonville, started my career in banking, continued in banking for about 10 years, and then in, I'm sorry, five years, and then in 1986, I was asked to go to Washington, D.C. as chief of staff to our late Congressman Charles Bennett. I did that for two years. I came back home, continued my banking career until 1996, and then went into mortgage lending and then commercial real estate, where I am now. However, I did take another sort of sabbatical from 04 to 07, where I taught at my high school alma mater, Terry Parker High School. So I've been in the classroom as a classroom teacher. Uh, most of my career is in the pub, in the private sector, working in uh, the financial arena. And uh, that's a little bit about myself. Was there something specific that motivated you to run for office at this time? Uh, I had run in 2015. Uh, Scott Wilson uh, prevailed in that race. Uh, Scott supports me in this campaign. Uh, has contributed. Uh, and I decided that uh, I was appointed to the Southeast CPAC by my HOA board. They asked me to represent them on the Taxation, Revenue, and Utilization of Expenditures, or TRUE Commission. And I started studying the Sheriff's Office and found out that we are severely understaffed. So I developed a plan that will fully fund the police over the next eight years, hiring 148 officers a year, That'll make up the shortfall, plus provide for the growth that we are going to experience over the next eight years. Uh, we don't have to raise taxes. It costs, on average, about uh, $16 million a year. Last year alone, we generated $95 million in just new ad valorem tax revenue because of our, the growth in the tax base. So this is a, a very uh, critical area. It's the first function of local government is to provide for public safety. And I think we have to have adequate first responders and uh, starting with uh, the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. And because of its understaffing, they can't even answer the calls for service, much less do additional training or have backup on critical situations where you need to de-escalate the situation. All right. And if you have any questions for uh, District 11 candidate Raymond Day, give us a call. That number is 549-2937. Uh, so you've already addressed crime, which is one of the big priorities for, for most residents here in Duval County. An- another big priority is affordable housing. Do you have any plans oh, yeah. in mind for that? Yeah, I do, sure. yes. Uh, affordable housing, we can approach this on sort of a, a three-pronged uh, approach. The first is just immediate relief. People who are on the verge of being evicted or foreclosed, we can help the city provide funding to nonprofits who will enable us to give that relief. Number two is the recovery. So the Jacksonville Housing Authority can provide more public housing units. The Jacksonville Housing Finance Authority can provide uh, low-rate mortgages for people to buy their own home. And uh, it can also provide financing for multifamily developers so that we can increase the supply of multifamily rental units. And then finally, the long-term solution is we have to reform uh, city government itself in terms of how we uh, uh, allow the developers to get product uh, out of the ground, so to speak, and actually begin building new homes. If we can shorten that time frame, that shortens the carrying cost of the developers and the builders, and therefore the homes should cost less money, make them more affordable. All right, great. And it looks like we do have a caller. We've got Ryan in Riverside. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. I was just curious, with JSO taking up over half of the city budget, what's your response to that with them saying that they're understaffed because they can't afford it? Where's all that money going? That's a very good question. Very good question, Ryan. Uh, As I have looked into the sheriff's budget, you'll see uh, a, a quarterly variance report. And some of those line items in the, the sheriff's budget, uh, they're overspending. So we would want to dig into that, find out why are they overspending on their allocated funding. These, this is not funding for positions. Uh, these, these are other operational expenses. 
So that maybe raises the question of how well uh, the sheriff's office is actually being managed by the sheriff and the middle management team. I don't think it comes down to the line officers in the zones. Uh, those are larger issues. But uh, I come from the business world, and you know we are very accustomed to digging into the numbers and looking at costs and understanding uh, how is a, a more cost-effective way to operate our organization. So I would bring those skills to the city council and utilize that approach in examining where we can uh, cut out the uh, money that's being wasted and direct it back towards higher uh, numbers of officers in the streets. All right, and since I moved to Jacksonville in 2018, the majority of my reporting has been focused on climate change and how it's impacting the region and, and what's being done about it. So, so where do you stand on, on those issues? Well, I have a, a, a plan called Smart Growth, where we would go in and utilize areas where we already have existing infrastructure. We have uh, four rail corridors that come out of downtown uh, along Phillips Highway, U.S. 17, out U.S. 90, which is Beaver Street, and then out uh, Old, Old Kings Road. And what we can do is we can uh, allow higher density development in those areas, utilize the rail as a transportation component. Not You don't have to overburden the existing streets. Uh, and we can, have, uh, we can direct the growth into those areas, and that pulls development pressure off of the environmentally sensitive areas like the river and, like, for instance, in some of the areas out in District 11 that are environmentally sensitive areas, you can't develop those. So the development that does occur uh, would, would be a sustainable pattern, uh, you know, more moderate levels of density, traditional neighborhoods, and the uh, smart growth approach directs that growth into the areas that can actually support it. We already have infrastructure. It's a very low marginal cost for that development, but it would be an immediate benefit to the city's bottom line with the higher tax revenue. Could help add to the stock of affordable housing as well. It, very much so, because anytime you have higher density, you're able to have more affordable price points. Correct. All right. And what about uh, uh, carbon emission reductions? Is that something you think as a city we should be thinking about? I definitely do. And, you know, we own the Jacksonville Electric Authority. I would push the JEA to uh, move towards a more, uh, you know, uh, renewable source of energy for generating electricity and, uh, you know, take that sort of an approach. I'm not an expert in, ener in energy, but I do know that we can do things to, to reduce the carbon footprint. All right. And we are, are coming close on, on time here, but I wanted to ask you real quick because it was brought to our attention that uh, there are some attack ads that are sort of coming out in, in your race as well. It's not just limited to the mayoral race. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening there? Uh, yeah. My two Republican competitors have decided to go at each other. It's, it's ridiculous. It's juvenile. Uh, you know, tell the voters what you want to do, uh, why you're the person to execute that plan. And I think that's how we need to deliver the message. That's the message that I'm delivering. You know, I can't control what they do. I think Republicans tend to have a tendency to cannibalize their own. Uh, I think that's unfortunate. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I will continue my message of saying, you know, why I think we need to have safe neighborhoods, smart growth fiscal responsibility, sound human services, and neighborhood fairness. All right. Well, we are running out of time here, but I wanted to thank you for coming on the show, Raymond Day. Uh, again, can, uh, City Council candidate for District 11 joining us in studio. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Brendan. I really enjoyed it. Thanks yeah. a lot. All right. So you are listening to First Coast Connect. I'm Brendan River sitting in for Melissa Ross. We'll be right back in a few moments. Lifting and graceful to the ear, Anton Bruckner's Fifth Symphony will fill Jacoby Symphony Hall for two spectacular performances on March 17th and 18th. 
Experience music that shines with one-of-a-kind melodies and even more expressive hues when performed live by the world-class musicians of the Jacksonville Symphony. Find tickets and information at jacksymphony.org. Film director Colm Barade grew up in Dublin in the 1980s. Few people spoke Irish then or now, but his Irish-language film is up for an Oscar. It is wonderful to see that there is a sort of a reappraisal taking place, a sort of willingness to give the language a chance or to give it space. How dialogue in the movie On Colleen Kuhn, The Quiet Girl, is raising awareness of the Irish language. It's on the world. This afternoon at 3, here on WJCT News 89.9. On the next Fresh Air, why police violence and misconduct so often go unpunished. We talk with Joanna Schwartz, UCLA law professor and author of Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. In her book, she examines the laws and policies that protect police and why reforms are so hard to implement. Join us. Today at noon on WJCT News 89.9. Child labor is being used in some of the most dangerous jobs in the U.S. That's according to a new investigation by the New York Times that paints a dreary picture of migrant children working in the manufacturing industry. Meanwhile, some states are looking to loosen child labor restrictions to meet hiring needs. How did we get here? And what's being done to curb child labor violations? Next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back. You're listening to First Coast Connect. I'm Brendan Rivers sitting in for Melissa Ross. It's the start of one of the biggest sporting events in North Florida, the Players. And the Jaguars have made some headlines for all of the wrong reasons. With the details on this and more, we are joined by our own Josh Torres. Good morning, Josh. Hey there, Brendan. So this week is the start of the players. What can fans expect when they go down to Ponte Vedra this weekend? I mean, just a really fantastic event, Brendan. I mean, Every single year this happens, it's always, it really is fun. Even if you just go for one day, like just to be down there, really take in the environment. There's all kinds of stuff to do down there. And on top of that, if you are a very big golf fan, which a lot of people are, it almost shocks you a little bit sometimes when you see how many people really are golf fans. Because we, I feel like when we grew up, it was always known as like the old person sport. But a lot of young people do like it too. And it's, it is a very, very big event it is easily one of the biggest events here in north florida uh that happens and it brings people from all over the world and it's just so fun to go out there and just experience and kind of take in the environment down there there's a big concert that opens up the weekend and then you know you get into the golf and that is also what i'm interested in is the golf and it is it is considered the an unofficial major so there are four majors in the pga and this one's considered the unofficial fifth major because it opens the season and it really is very, very difficult to win. Uh, but let's go into that. And right now, the odds-on favorite to win is John Rahm, who is currently the number one ranked golfer in the world. But then right after him, it's Roy McIlroy and Scotty Scheifler. And the best part about it, and this is why it's going to be very exciting to be down there, is those three players are going to be grouped up for the first two rounds of the championship this weekend. So you're going to literally see the number one, two, and third ranked golfers all going against each other in the same group for the first two rounds, which is very exciting. The fact that you see the three guys who are at the top of the golf rankings in the world playing against each other, trying to essentially knock each other out of the championship. Obviously, all three of them will more than likely make it past the first cut. Uh, if one of them doesn't, I'd be very, very shocked. But hey, it's sports. Anything can happen, but it's still an exciting, exciting weekend. I highly recommend, even if you just go out for one day, go out, take in the environment, and have some fun. All right. Sounds like it's going to be a great weekend of golf. Uh, so the NFL Players Association has released a brand new anonymous report card for all 32 NFL teams, uh, and that was done by the players. And the, the Jags did not score well. What, what can you tell us about this? Yeah. So this is the first time they've ever done this. Uh, they released a report card. On all 32 NFL teams, it was done by the players and was kept anonymous. That way, none, none of the players could, you know, be targeted because they, you know, said something bad about their team. And the Jags, out of 32 teams, they ranked 28th. And it took wow. in a lot of things, locker room, uh, you know, family care, 
health and nutrition. It took in basically everything that these players experienced in there, and they ranked very low. Uh, the headline I feel like a lot of people saw was that their number one thing was apparently for three to four weeks, there was a rat infestation in the locker room. Uh, now, I will also give the Jags a little bit of slack, which is that anybody's ever had any kind of rat infestation in their home or anything like that, it can take you a while before you can actually truly get rid of that problem because obviously they're small and they can run around and they can go into places you can't get to easily. So it can be very, very difficult to get out. Another highlight of the report for the Jags was that apparently, I mean, they don't have, a, they the players want them to take care of their families more. Apparently because they do not have a family center or daycare, uh, during games, when the families are there, they their wives have had to, if they have a nursing baby, they've had to actually go to a public restroom to breastfeed their child, which is another big thing that the players want to see changed. Um, and they also said like things like their training and weightlifting areas are a little bit inadequate, but obviously the Jags are building a brand new training facility, so they are hopeful that that is going to change soon. But the one thing the Jags can kind of take into is that 95% of their players said that the, who took part of this report said that they trust that Shad Khan is going to change that and is willing to invest in the team to make the environment better so they can take some solace in that. While they may not be as adequate as they would like it to be, uh, the, a lot, most of the players feel that Shad Khan is going to make changes and is going to make the environment better. All right, and it's almost opening day for the Jumbo Shrimp, and they've released their promotional calendar for the season. As usual, it's pretty fun and silly. What are what are your favorite promotions for the season? Yes, I always love when they do this because the Jumbo Shrimp, as a lot of minor league teams have done, they've gone all in on their promotional nights because they know that's how they get people out there. So you have your usual Thursday Thursdays, which a lot of us are frequents to, where you get your 2 and $3 beers. Uh, but I got to say, whoever, everybody at the Jumbo Shrimp, whoever writes these out for you for your promotional calendar, they need a raise and they need it now. Uh, a highlight of mine is uh, on, in April, around the end of April, when there's a certain holiday that a lot of people tend to celebrate. Uh, they are having I Hate to Be Blunt Day, where you can write a message to somebody if you're really just trying to hash something out with somebody, but you can't really get through the weeds of it. You get you get them write them a message and they will put it on the uh, the jumbotron, and for them to see. Then you have uh, purr in the park where you can bring your cat out to the. We've heard of a lot of uh, teams doing dog bring your dog to the park. Well, they're doing bring your cat. So those are just some of my favorites. But I'm telling you guys, if you need a good laugh on this Monday, just go look at their cat promotional counter because some of those, I mean, they have me crying from laughter. Like they are some of them. Whoever writes these out really needs a race because they are hilarious and it's going to be fun. And I always love going to a jumbo shrimp game. Yeah. I'm not that into baseball, but I'm a huge fan of this trend of uh, goofy stuff in minor league baseball. It is great. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Our senior producer is Heather Schatz. Our producer is Bridget O'Brien. Our director is Isabella De Silva with technical help from morning edition host, Michelle Corum. Have questions or comments about first coast connect, send an email to first coast connect at WJCT.org. I'm Brendan Rivers, sitting in for Melissa Ross and you're listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.